Well, on the day that Jesus was to be crucified, he was brought before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And while he stood there, already bruised and bleeding, Pilate began to interrogate him about his supposed crimes. And when he asked Jesus about his identity, whether or not he was the king of the Jews, Jesus told him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting, that I might not be delivered up to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. In response to this, Pilate had Jesus scourged and whipped within an inch of his life and then brought back. And Pilate continued to press Jesus for an answer to his questions, and frustrated with him, he said to him, do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you, and I have the authority to crucify you? To which Jesus replied, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. And with that answer, Jesus put Pilate in his place, informing him that as the king of heaven, Jesus is exalted over every earthly king, and while on earth, he is only subject to the authority of the Father. <clears throat> the Bible consistently affirms that Jesus Christ is Lord over all the earth. Colossians 1.16 affirms this, says, By him all things are created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Furthermore, we read in numerous places that the Father has given all authority to the Son. In doing so, the Son is therefore exempt and exalted above every earthly custom, law, power, and ruler. Again, His kingdom is otherworldly. And yet, Philippians 2, 6-8 tells of His humility, His voluntary subjection to the powers of this world. We see this in many places in Scripture, preeminently in the submission of Christ to the death that He experiences on the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at a situation where Jesus is approached by tax collectors looking for Him to give them money to worship in His own Father's house. And so if you would, turn to the end of Matthew 17. We're going to wrap up Matthew 17 today. My plan is to bring us right into Matthew 18 next week and keep on going. Matthew 17. Now, we understand that at this point in the gospel narrative, Jesus and the disciples have been on the road for quite a while. They've been traveling around in and out of Israel, into Galilee, the territory, uh, the, the region of Galilee, but then into Gentile territory. Back again, they've been traveling in and out and around for the better part of the last three years, however, Jesus' main home base has been in Capernaum, the small city of Capernaum. He's a native to Nazareth, a very small, small one-horse town, if you will, but he decides that Capernaum is a much better location from which to operate his, his Galilean ministry, and so that's where he's been in and out for quite a while. And so after returning from Caesarea Philippi, Jesus and the disciples, they find themselves back in Capernaum for this specific instance. Matthew 17, starting in verse 24, when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. When he came back into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? 
From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter said, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. It's not long before Jesus and the disciples get back to their hometown that tax collectors come and find them. You can always count on the tax collectors to find you at your most inopportune moment, right? But here they are. They've just gotten back from a missionary journey, and there's the tax collectors waiting for them. Now, these tax collectors are approaching them for the purpose of collecting the two drachma tax. Now, we know that this was a specific tax uh, used for the upkeep of the temple. Now, just to kind of get into what we're talking about here, two drachmas was not a lot of money. It was about two days' wages for the most part. And every Jewish male over the age of 20, but not women, not children, not slaves, and not even certainly Samaritans and Gentiles, they were actually prohibited from paying this tax. But everybody else, all the other men, had to pay this two drachma tax. Now, the origin of this tax comes to us in Exodus 30. We know that. The law was given to Moses for God's people, and it was a mandate, he says, for all the sons of Israel to give a ransom for himself to the Lord. In this way, by doing this, by paying this money, they were formally enrolling themselves to be counted amongst God's people in the census. I don't want to say it's like an application fee or a membership fee, but it's something in the vicinity of a sanctified fee in that regard. Now, God is saying all these men are to pay this so they can be numbered among the people. Verse 14 of that chapter says, Everyone who is numbered 20 years old and over shall give a contribution to the Lord. And then he adds this, The rich shall not pay more. You can't think you're going to get in good with us by paying a lot of money. The rich will not pay more. And the poor will not pay less. And what is to be the amount? Exodus thirty thirteen says half a shekel, half a shekel. A shekel was the approximation of about a half ounce of silver. So half a shekel, so half of a half of an ounce is about a quarter ounce of silver. In today's economy, give or take, it's only about $10 in the silver markets. Again, not very much money here. But the point is, is that we're not talking about a large sum We're talking about a very meager amount that every single adult male over 20 was required to pay uh, to the Lord. And then we see you fast forward several hundred years in Nehemiah 10, after Israel has already been captured and released from captivity, they come back to their land, they rededicate themselves uh, to rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall, that's what uh, Nehemiah does. And they also dedicate themselves to the responsibilities that they owe to the Lord. And this includes their obligations to temple service. And so in Nehemiah 10.32, we read that the Israelites placed on themselves a contribution. Now, note this carefully, a contribution of one-third of a shekel. Not a half now, but one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of God. And so they've made a slight modification of what this amount is. God allows it. But again, this is a small contribution for the upkeep of the temple. Fast forward a couple hundred years, and now the Romans occupy Israel. They collect their own taxes. That's what they do. I mean, they go out and they have all these taxes and they use them for the empire and for the roads and for all kinds of things. 
But still, Israel is desiring to collect their own taxes for the purpose of the upkeep of their temple. And so the temple tax was sanctioned by Rome. And what was that tax to be? They weren't using shekels now, but more modern currency. And so they were permitted to exercise a drachma. A drachma is actually a Greek coin, a Greek silver coin that was equal to a Roman denarius. So you have lots of different coinage floating around, and so the shekel was Greek, the denarius was Roman, and so collecting, and you you calculate the tax money, two drachmas was equivalent to that half shekel, which is what was needed. It was the exact amount that they were using for this temple tax. And so tax collectors, again, they're sanctioned by Rome, they're allowed to go and collect, they arrive in Capernaum, they see Peter, and they ask him about them paying this temple tax. Now, the question has been asked, why didn't they just go right to Jesus? And we don't really know. Maybe it would have been custom, it was disrespectful to go directly to the rabbi. You would go to his followers instead. We don't really know. Whatever the reason, they go and they ask Peter instead. And they pose the question to him, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And Peter answers, yes. Now, this is given textual scholars sort of cause to scratch their heads because Peter, the question is being asked in the negative. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Now, if you were to answer in the affirmative, you're saying he doesn't pay the tax, but yet we're still questioning whether or not Peter is answering yes because he does or yes because he doesn't. Is, does Jesus pay this tax? But the, the argument has been made that as a good Jew, Jesus would have been paying the tax all along. We have other examples of Jesus paying his taxes and telling others to pay their taxes when it's appropriate. And why not this one? Now, I've read both views on the matter, and really, it doesn't really ultimately matter because it's hypothetical. We don't really truly know what Peter was saying, but we do know that this question and answer gets clarified as soon as Peter walks into the house. Verse 25 says that when he, talking about Peter, when he came into the house, notably where Jesus was, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, what do you think, Simon? He's going to put it back on Simon, on Simon Peter. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? What's fascinating about this is that we know that Peter was going to bring this question up because it seems as though Peter's confused. But Jesus already knows what the question is. Now, some have said, well, Jesus overheard them. I don't think so. I think Jesus knows exactly what's going on spiritually, miraculously, uh, in terms of his omniscience. He knows what was on Peter's mind, and he he meets him right where he is and says, I'm going to talk to you about the thing you just had happened to you. And so he speaks first. He speaks first. He supernaturally knows what has transpired, and he intends to address it. And so he starts off by asking a question. And first, he's probing Simon Peter to consider the matter. And so he says, what do you think, Simon? What do you think? Now, I'm sure if you're Simon, you're thinking, what do I think about what, Lord? Because every time, there's always something that Peter's going to put his foot in his mouth, hopefully not here, right? But it comes to the key question. Jesus persists, from whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? Believe it or not, this question is actually a lot simpler than it first appears, What are these two things? Customs, that's tax on goods. Taxes on goods. Poll tax is a tax on individuals. So who has the right to collect these taxes? And he says, from whom do the kings of the earth collect the taxes? 
There's only two options, from their sons or from strangers. Now, some have tried to complicate this matter by trying to differentiate between Jewish kings versus Gentile kings. Well, who are the sons and who are this and who are that? Trying to identify who the sons are. The sons are the, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel versus the strangers being the Gentiles. But again, I think it overcomplicates the question. Jesus is making a generalized statement. He doesn't say, who do the kings of Israel or who do the kings of man? He says, whom do the kings of the earth? It's representing any kind of king anywhere. He's making a generalized statement. All the kings and all the earth, from where or from whom do they collect their taxes? Now, if you interpret sons as citizens, it doesn't make any sense. Because whom do the kings of the earth collect their taxes from? They collect them from their own citizens. So, if you translate that and say, well, sons means citizens, it doesn't make any sense. Rather, we're meant to understand that Jesus is asking of kings whether they collect them, collect them from their own sons, their own children, their kids, or from strangers. We know this is what Jesus meant because in verse 26, when Peter says from strangers, Jesus concurs with this, and he says the sons are exempt. And this makes sense. When a king decides, and think about this in your mind, when a king decides he wants to build a new palace, and he levies a tax on the people to pay for the palace. He doesn't then go home after making the pronouncement, go to his kids and tell them to break open their piggy bank so they can give the tax that they owe to their dad for the purpose of building the kingdom, right? That doesn't make any sense. You'd never do that. That would be crazy. And so, no, their sons are exempt from their father's taxes. Make sense? The king only collects taxes and tribute from strangers, people he doesn't really know very well, not from his own kids. You don't tax your own family if you're a king. And so the question then is, is Jesus required to pay the temple tax? Now before you answer, and I know what your answer is going to be because it's what my answer is as well, but I want to think this through. Before we consider this, Jesus has already said this about the temple in Matthew twelve six. He has declared that he himself is greater than the temple. He's already proclaimed himself to be greater than the temple. He's the Son of God. In Luke 2.49, also in John 2.16, Jesus walks into the temple and calls the temple my Father's house. So even though you and I know what this is because we're in light of 2,000 years removed here, the Bible itself is already declared, and Jesus himself has already declared the truth of this matter. The temple, he says, is my Father's house. Jesus is the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God. And so the question then becomes clear the more we study Scripture. Why would he be required to pay the kind of tax that they're asking for to the house that his Father owns? And the question is, he doesn't. He is exempt. But the disciples also, by virtue of their close connection with the Lord and their servitude to him as sons, they are also, I believe, exempt. In fact, in Luke 6.35, John 1.12, Romans 8, Ephesians 1.5, Galatians 3.24, all these verses and many more teach us that we are adopted as children, as firstborn sons. Even if you're a lady, you're still adopted as a firstborn son in terms of position. Position. We have the firstborn status with God on the basis of our faith in Christ. 
And so not only is Jesus the Son of God, we are adoptive children. We are adopted as sons of God in His eyes. And so we then also, and the disciples themselves, would be exempt from the Father's tax. But this illustrates the first of several principles I want to hit this morning as we're looking at this text. If you're taking notes, the principle number one, first principle here, the kingdom of heaven is above the kingdoms of the earth. The kingdom of heaven is above the kingdoms of the earth. Here in verse 26, Jesus declares that the sons of God are exempt from these kinds of earthly customs. We have freedom in Christ. Our, our future home, our, the kingdom that we belong to, is not this kingdom. We are strangers and aliens in this world, and don't we feel it more and more every day? There are certain short seasons of world history where it feels like there's utopia on earth, and then once we realize the sinfulness of sin and the wickedness of fallen leaders, we realize this is not heaven. This is not our home. Jesus himself said, my kingdom is not of this world. He wasn't bothered by the miscellany of earthly troubles. He was 100% kingdom-minded all the time. The things he was doing were so far beyond the Jewish leaders what they were squabbling over. He wasn't worried about Roman occupation. He wasn't concerned about Jewish legalism, except for the effect it had on his people. He wasn't worried about their infighting and squabbles. He wasn't worried about their politics. I don't care that Rabbi so-and-so is angry at Rabbi so-and-so. I don't care. He certainly wasn't going to be bothered with the the half-shekel $10 temple tax that his father owned, a temple, by the way, that represented a system he was there to replace, a temple by which was going to be destroyed within 40 years. Why am I giving them 10 bucks? They're not going to be here by the time I'm gone. No, the kingdom of heaven is far above the kingdoms of the earth. And yet, verse 27, look at verse 27. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take it and give that to them for you and me. Jesus made the point here that he is exempt from the temple tax. He does not have to pay, and neither do his followers. Don't have to pay it. However, he adds, he still intends to pay the tax. That's why I said that whether or not the, the implication of whether they were asking if Jesus does or doesn't, and whether Peter says he did or didn't, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is intending to do it. Jesus will pay the tax. Whether he did before, I don't know, but here he is. He's going to pay the tax. Why? So that we do not offend them. That's very interesting. How would refusing to pay the tax offend them? Again, it's a very small amount. How would that offend them? Well, if Jesus, this great rabbi in Israel, refused to pay the temple tax, it would give the appearance that he doesn't support the house of God. That's how they would have spun it. He doesn't pay the temple tax, he's against the temple. And they're going to argue and say, well, what's wrong with worshiping in the temple? The temple is the preeminent symbol of Judaism. It's where Israel goes and worships the Lord. Are you saying that you don't want to pay $10 so people can worship in the temple? That's how it would have been perceived. 
and not necessarily by the Pharisees. It doesn't really matter what they say because they're going to say anything they can to discredit Jesus. But even the regular people who are interested in the things of God, they would have scratched their heads. Why isn't the rabbi, the master, the teacher, why isn't he paying the temple tax? Does that mean I'm, supposed to, I'm not supposed to go to the temple and worship the Lord? More than this, by the way, the precedent for the tax comes from Scripture. It comes from Scripture, both Exodus 30 and Nehemiah 10, as we already saw. Once again, the Jesus doesn't, he doesn't care about the Pharisees, what they think, but he doesn't want to give the appearance of all those around him that he is somehow disobeying Scripture or forsaking worship. Do you see that? He's not going to give the impression that we are to disobey the Word of God or forsake the gathering for worship. It'd be a cause of tremendous stumbling for those who are seeking the kingdom because they won't understand. They can't even understand the most simple things about the kingdom, and yet this would just throw them through a, a whole tizzy. And so Jesus, I want you to note this, Jesus voluntarily surrenders his own liberty. He says, I'm exempt. I don't have to pay this tax. It's my father's house. He voluntarily surrenders his own liberty in order to prevent others from stumbling. That's a principle for us even now, which leads us to the second one, the second principle. The children of God, that's us, the children of God are to be humble in the eyes of men. The children of God are to be humble in the eyes of men. Because here's the thing, beloved, the outside world is watching what you do. And I'll tell you, they're watching even this church. If those of you who don't live in Gilmanton might not know this, but Gilmanton is a very small town. I don't mean geographically. Very small town. We all know each other's business. I went to one of the stores one day, and I was talking to the guy behind the counter, and I said, where do you live? And he told me some town I live 45 minutes away. I says, wow, wow, why don't you live in Gilmanton? He goes, I don't really want to live here. I says, why not? He says, well, let's just say it this way. If you don't know your, your own business, ask your neighbor. He'll tell you your business. I said, oh, very interesting. I grew up in Gilmanton. I was born and raised here. I know how it goes. So people talk here. Now, sometimes that's good. Other times it's not so good. But the bottom line is that people are paying attention. They look at your Facebook page. They look at your Twitter profile. If you have Instagram, they look at that too. They go on, they look at announcements, they drive by real slow. They always drive by very slow. When I was a kid, there would be cars that would slow down, look through my parents' window, they'd slow way down. What's going on? You think I'm joking. Oh, boy. What's the point? The point is people are watching what we do. They're listening to what we say. They're paying attention And if we do something wrong, they will see it, and they'll be the first to point out, don't you go to Harvest Bible Church? Oh, interesting. Don't you pastor Harvest Bible Church? Oh, i got to be careful too. They watch what we're doing. They hear. They behold our witness. And so what we do, there are times when we are called, beloved, to give up our liberties for the cause of Christ. There are times, and we see this from the Apostle Paul, In 1 Corinthians 8 and chapter 9, he argues for his own freedom from the Mosaic law. See, the Jews were not allowed to eat certain kinds of meat. They certainly weren't allowed to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols. Oh, you can't do that. But Paul says it doesn't really matter if it's been deemed to be sacrificed to a fake idol. I don't care. It's just a piece of meat. Paul wasn't bothered by this, and he argues in the same passage, Am I not free? Do we not have the right to eat and to drink? 
I can eat whatever I want. I can drink whatever I want, Paul says. And the answer is yes. But then he pauses and he says this in 1 Corinthians 8, 13. If eating meat, and he's talking about specific meat that's been sacrificed to idols, if eating meat causes a weaker brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. I will give up my liberty so that a weaker brother who is struggling to understand the things of God, I don't want him to defile his own conscience. Chapter 9, verse 12, he says, we endure, he's talking about all of us, we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Verse 22, Paul says, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. Then he says, I become all things to all men. He's not talking about flexing and bending on his principles. He's talking about giving preference. I have become all things to all men so that by all means I might save some. Where do you think he got that? He got it from Christ. He got it from Christ. And so we humble ourselves in order to win them over to Christ by our testimony, and that includes paying taxes. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 13 with me. Romans chapter 13. Invariably, someone will always protest and claim that Christians are exempt from every human institution. They claim Christian liberty, and they even will cite their allegiance to Christ as reason for that. And I've even heard people say, Many, many times, I refuse to pay taxes to a wicked and corrupt government. Christ is my king, not Caesar. I've heard that said many, many times. But the question is, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Romans chapter 13. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority, listen to this, beloved, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear, uh, are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it, referring to government, it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you would do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. But it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Because of this, you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now you look at verse 7 again. I'm just going to go off book here for a second. There's lots of applications for verse 7. Lots of applications. And this could even be something as silly as when someone earns a doctorate degree. And, they, and they would, the most important thing would be to call them Dr. So-and-so. And you're friends with them, and you say, oh, I'm just going to call him Jim. Hey, Jim, how are you? Now, he might say to you, well, you know, I, well, I guess so. We're, we're, not to be, we're Christians here. We're all, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. But the Bible teaches us, you know what? Call him doctor. 
Call him doctor. He's earned that title. Even though he's not your superior in terms of the eyes of the kingdom, he's your friend. Call him doctor. Now, if he tells you, you know what, don't call me that. Just call me Jim. That's fine. That's very different. But something as small, something as microscopic as that. Now, you could certainly take that and, and blow up many, many other applications. Pay honor to whom honor is due, fear to whom fear is due, custom to who custom is due. Try the custom thing. Don't get your wife an anniversary card and see how it goes. That's just custom. All the ladies laughed, right? That's just custom. It's a hallmark holiday. It doesn't matter. But why would you not? It's custom. Everybody, all their other friends got anniversary cards. You're going to withhold custom on principle? Why? Now, again, you, you do whatever you want to do. I'm not going to, I do marriage counseling, so you let me know if there's a problem. <laughs> my point, and you understand my point here, that you can apply this all different ways, and there are times, you have to wrestle. Conscience, and one of these days we'll cover, we'll do a large 38-week sermon series on conscience. Conscience is a very tricky thing. Because the Holy Spirit impresses upon all of us in different ways, at different times, at different levels of spiritual maturity, and we have to wrestle with conscience, because what's, what's conscience-binding for one might not be conscience-binding for another, so it becomes difficult here. But that's why he says, do all things for the sake of conscience. Don't owe anything to anybody. And if you feel bound, you know what? The Bible doesn't say I have to, but I, I feel like I really should. I feel like God will be honored if I do this. Then by all means, do it. Don't defile your conscience. Remember, though, what Jesus said to Pilate in terms of authority. Jesus says, you have no authority over me unless it's been given to you by God. Now, you're thinking, going back to taxes and government and all those kinds of things, ponder this. God gave Pilate the authority to execute Jesus. God gave Pilate the authority to kill the Lord of glory. And Jesus still taught his disciples to pay taxes to him. He does so in Mark 12, 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the things, the things of God's that are to God's. Same thing with Romans 13. We are commanded to pay taxes, even taxes to a wicked government. And let me just give you a clue. They're all wicked governments. The only government that is not going to be wicked is the government of Christ when he comes and sets it up on earth. That will be the only righteous, truly righteous and perfect government in the history of mankind. And so we're always paying taxes to wicked people. It doesn't matter. Now, by God's grace, there are times when we have leaders that are righteous and they're upstanding in the eyes of God. Some are even Christians once in a while. But for the vast majority of history, they're not believers. We are told that it is God who gives government as authority over us. They are allowed to exercise that authority over us, and we are commanded by God to humbly submit to that authority. Once again, render to all whom is due, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear is due, honor to whom honor is due. Because in the end, we want to have a clear conscience before God and before others. And we don't want to give the impression that we are rebels or somehow above the law. God is not honored by that. It's interesting because in years, years to come, years later, Peter, who is really one of the... Jesus is talking to Peter specifically about this, but Peter says virtually the same thing. He writes in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, "...submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution." 
whether to a king as one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men." That's really important. When we obey authority, when we submit ourselves to every human institution, according to sound conscience, it shuts the mouths of those who would accuse us of sin. You're just a bunch of rebels. Really? I pay my taxes. I cross the street. I don't jaywalk. I do all the things I'm supposed to do because I want to give the appearance and the impression and in full conscience that I'm not above that. That I serve one master, and that's God, and he tells me to obey, so I do. Peter continues, act as free men, act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil. That's very dangerous for us, isn't it? To use our God-given freedom as a covering to do what is evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Oh boy, as an American, I get a little bit hot under the collar when I read some of these verses, don't we? It's hard to hear. Use your freedom, not as a covering for evil, but use your freedom as a servant, as a slave of God. Be subject to God in the way that you use your freedom. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. The children of God are to be humble in the eyes of men. And who is our example of such humility? Jesus had every right to overthrow all of Rome. He could have marched in there told Pilate what's what, and said, give me that crown right now. He could have taken the whip out of the executioner's hand and said, come here. He could have come down from the cross and slayed every single one of those Roman opposition. He had every right under the authority of God, and yet, he humbled himself. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He humbled himself. He allowed himself to be killed on the cross. He allowed wicked men to whip him and rip the flesh off his back. He allowed those who have no bearing at all in this world to curse him and spit on him. The Lord himself humbled himself, and my beloved, we are his servants. And yet, with all of that being said, we see one final overarching principle. This is, I love this, by the way. Go back to Matthew 17. Principle number three. The Son of God is Lord over all. The Son of God is Lord over all. What is remarkable here is that even though Jesus humbles himself to pay the tax he doesn't owe, he does it in the most glorious way possible. Now, Jesus could have said, hey, Judas, come here for a second. Open up the money bag if there's anything left over, buddy. Come here, give me two, the two drachma tax. I'm going to go pay our taxes right now. He doesn't do that. Verse 27, he tells Peter, Go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Give that to them for you and me. It's interesting, though, we don't actually see the miracle performed. Jesus only tells Peter to do it. It's not recorded that he actually goes and does it, but we have no reason to believe that it doesn't transpire the exact way that Jesus said it would. Generally, when people go fishing, they cast a net to catch a lot of fish, but Jesus says, don't cast a net. I want you to just throw in one little hook, one hook, and when you catch a fish, bring it up, and that's going to be the fish. That's remarkable. 
So when he fishes, he tells them that the first fish is going to have a shekel in its mouth. Some translations have rendered this a stator. A stator is a a coin that is actually equivalent to the shekel here. But this shekel would have been enough money to pay two of those temple taxes. And so that's why he says, when you find that, pay it for you and for me both. This is amazing because even in that, a very small thing, a small miracle, we see that the Lord provides. So what is the moral of the story? If you want to pay your taxes, go fishing, right? That's simple. (laughs) Now, this story here is only told in Matthew. Only Matthew tells the story. And maybe it's because Matthew used to be a tax collector, so this was a, he had some kind of an affinity to this specific story. This struck him a certain way. I don't know. But Matthew tells the story here. It serves yet as another illustration that Jesus is more than a common Jew. He's more than a teacher. He's more than a prophet. Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He calls God His own Father. He's the only begotten Son of God. He displays over and over again that He's equal with God. In John 5.18, He's calling God His Father, and the Scripture says that the Pharisees were angry because He was claiming authority and equality with God because He called God His own Father. They understood what He's talking about. Skeptics always say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Oh, yes, He did. Well, how do we know? Because they always tried to kill him for claiming to be God, because they understood that equality with God, to call him your father, was blasphemy, if it's not true. And so Jesus was telling them over and over again, God is my father, I'm his son. What do you mean by that? What do you think I mean by that? I'm the son of God. I'm the son of man from Daniel. So over and over again, Jesus is exerting this authority, this position, And that is what drives the Jews to want to kill him. But he does more than simply claim equality with God. He demonstrates it. He demonstrates that equality. Even here, this is so remarkable, the layers of this. Even here, he is submitting himself under those authorities, paying the two drachma tax, even yet paying the tax. He does it miraculously. As if to to show one more time that I am the Son of God. Watch how I pay my taxes. And in this way we see that Jesus is the Son of God. And as the Son of God, Jesus Christ is Lord over all. When Jesus claimed to be equal with God, this made the Jewish leaders angry. Very angry. So angry, in fact, that they plotted to kill Him. And they got their chance eventually, and they put Jesus to death on a cross just outside the city. And again, Jesus submitted to it. He submitted to it. Why? Because by his humble, sacrificial death, he paid for our sins. It's the only way he could have done it. And by his miraculous resurrection, he was raised to life and he raised us to life with him. And what is God's promise to us in the midst of all of this? For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe in the Son of God for salvation, for everlasting life? If you don't, I plead with you today, right now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait around like those on the Areopagus and say, well, why don't you come back next week and I'll 
I'll think about it. Don't do that. Trust in Jesus Christ right now. If you don't, the Bible says you will perish. When your soul finally comes to an, when your body comes to its end and your soul leaves and departs, it will not be in glory with the Father. It will be in torment. Don't do that. Don't perish. But if you do believe, if you do trust Him, the Bible says you will have everlasting life. And not just life eternal sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. It's life eternal in glory with the God who made you. And you will dwell with Him in unapproachable light, in joy, in happiness, in worship, in transcendent glory. And you're now with the one with whom you've been acquainted with your whole life and didn't know. It's like, it's like a mirror that's been covered dimly. Now it's going to be, the veil's taken away and you'll be able to see Him. And now when you live in the kingdom that He's creating for us in the future, the new heavens and the new earth, when you live with Him, you will have a whole life, a whole eternity of abundant, joyous life doing what you were made for. Life eternal with God in Christ in fellowship with the Spirit. There's nothing better. This life is not all there is. This is only temporary. And while we are here, we, yes, we submit ourselves to every human institution for the glory of God, we hold our conscience captive. We don't waver on our principles. I will never waver on the gospel of Christ, and neither should you. However, we are here for a short time, but one day He will return to us in glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You so much for this wonderful text with so many layers. This text declares so clearly that You, Lord Jesus, are exempt you're high and lofty. You're, you're lifted above every human institution. And as adopted children of God, so are we. We don't owe this world anything. And yet you still command us, you still tell us that we are to subject ourselves. We are to be submissive for the sake of conscience so that we don't cause a stumbling block to the watching world so that they will not be able to, to hang us on a technicality Lord, I pray that for all of our life and all of our witness, that the only stumbling block that others trip over with regard to our life is the stumbling block of Christ. Let that be what they persecute us for. Let that be what they stumble over. And yet, Lord, in the midst of all that, in the midst of submission and subjection to governing authorities and subjection to human institutions, Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that we are not citizens of this kingdom. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And you are our king. The king of kings. The Lord of lords. And in the end, when all is done and said, you are our king. We submit ourselves purely to you. Whatever you say for us to do, Lord, we will do it. And so help us, Lord. Because we are sinful. We do trip and stumble over these things. We do defile our conscience. We do disobey. We do sin. But you also tell us that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who gave himself for us as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice, a payment for our sin. You, O oh Lord, are worthy to be praised. And so I pray that as we 
go forward even today, that you would remind us to be humble, to be godly, not to cause any stumbling, but to hold our conscience captive and to surrender ourselves completely to your sovereign will. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.